Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I decided to use the program this week to provide the listeners with a history lesson. Right now, the uh, state of Israel is going through a trauma. There are people who are trying to change some of the laws, people opposed to it. And I've spoken about this previously. What happened was over the last 20 or 25 years, they made changes pushed through by the uh, Supreme Court that gave the Supreme Court more power than it has Supreme Courts have in other countries. And very briefly, uh, in America, for example, uh, a Supreme Court justice is chosen by the president, but then must be, uh, that's the uh, executive branch, it must be approved by the Senate, which is the legislative branch. So the, the uh, executive chooses, the legislative approves, and that person becomes a judge. Here, the judges of the high court are selected by a committee, which is essentially ruled by the people who are on the high court already. And that's the big argument they're having now in Israel. So I want to step away from them back, step back a little bit, provide a um, bit of history. One of the most serious challenges Israel has faced over its history since independence was the economic and diplomatic isolation in this region, in the Near East, and in the world. Now, this isolation has eased dramatically in recent years, and Israel has become a partner as involved in economic and military collaboration with many new regional allies. <clears throat> so I want to say a few words about that. Three years before the Sinai campaign, back in 1953, the Prime Minister Ben-Gurion immersed himself in studying Israel's strategic challenges in what's become known as the Ben-Gurion Second Seminar. It was the, at that time, 1953, the outlook was very grim. Israel was facing a monolithic bloc of 22 Arab states, backed by an even larger Muslim bloc in many more countries. While these countries were divided on many issues, the common denominator at that time was their refusal to acknowledge the state of Israel and their commitment to resisting the very existence of the state of Israel. That's why, for example, companies like Coca-Cola saw their interest lying in the vast markets of the Arab and Muslim world, and you couldn't buy Coca-Cola in Israel. So uh, Ben-Gurion was aware of Israel's isolation in the region, and what he tried to do was to secure the country by formulating basic tenets that would ultimately serve the country for decades. These included, among other things, a commitment to developing and maintaining Israel's human, qualitative, and technological superior, superiority while securing a strong alliance with a superpower. Ben-Gurion believed at that time that through 
patience, perseverance, the Arab resolve against Israel would gradually erode until the monolithic Arab wall facing Israel would eventually crumble. Now, during that early period, Israel tried to find ways to ease its diplomatic isolation. The, uh, what, what the Ben-Gurion did was something interesting. Is essentially what we could call a periphery alliance. This was between Israel and modern pro-Western Muslim countries like Turkey, like Iran, as well as national minorities like the Kurds in Iraq. Israel offered in its agriculture expertise to third world countries in Africa and Asia in a further attempt to build diplomatic bridges. And at that time, Israel was a poor country with little to offer. Israel had to rely on its own military power, support from its main ally, France, at that time, and more modest support from Western countries like the United States and Germany. What happened was that Israel's position changed dramatically after the Six-Day War, which woke the world up to Israel's military strength. As Ben-Gurion hoped, Israel's belligerents had to accept that Israel could not be overcome by sheer force. Moreover, Israel was now in possession of the territories captured during the war. In, in September of 1967, right after the Six-Day War, the Arab countries got together in Khartoum. They made a Khartoum resolution had famous three no's. No, no uh, recognition of Israel, no, no peace with Israel, no negotiation with Israel. And uh, that was what the position was right after the Six-Day War. So the, uh, after that, Israel did all kinds of things overtly and covertly. And at, time, at that time, Western Europe pretty much bowed to the Arab desires, and they didn't allow the United States to deliver military aid to Israel. The, uh, so they used to pressure the West to comply with Arab viewpoints because, among other things, the Arabs had oil that the West needed. So it took another war in the courage of Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, he broke with the Arabs, signed a peace accord with Israel, but he did it because he perceived peace with Israel as being in Egypt's best interest. Uh, he got everything he demanded for Egypt from, uh, he got his territories back in the Sinai, and he got American sponsorship to supersede that of his Soviets, and the peace in Israel's history was cold, and in the end, Sadat paid with his life for having signed the peace, but it was a watershed in Israel's history, and it was really a resounding success for Ben-Gurion's grand strategy. The hope was that more countries would follow Egypt's lead, but those hopes were premature. As a matter of fact, because of peace with Israel, Egypt was boycotted and isolated. Then, at the end of the Cold War, the beginning of the 90s, 
Another breakthrough, when Israel made agreement with the Palestine Liberation Organization, they formed the Palestinian Authority and they start talking about a two-state solution. So uh, more the um, other Arab countries made, Muslim countries made peace with Israel. In Jordan, a country with uh, Israel had always maintained secret channels of communication, signed a peace agreement with uh, Israel. Even then, though, the peace process with the Palestinians had went from bad to worst. There were affairs of different summits and so forth. And as they approached the second decade of this century, it appeared that Israel's ability to make new diplomatic breakthroughs and alliances still depend on the advancement of the Palestinian negotiation. In other words, the key to Israel's integration into this neighborhood seemed to remain in the hands of the Palestinians. That's what it was like. This was view, by the way, was held by many leaders and uh, all the journalists and diplomats and all, all kind of experts said that the only way for Israel to advance its interests with other countries in the region was to make concessions to the Palestinians. The, that they claimed at that time that the only way to renew the peace process was a precondition for further diplomatic breakthroughs. And there was a tremendous uh, delegitimization campaign against Israel led by the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. So it looked like Israel was being isolated once again. Now, in contrast to this perception, and this is what's important, the policy of Netanyahu government was predicated on the conviction that the Palestinian problem is no longer an impediment that needs to be resolved as a condition for Israel to make diplomatic and commercial headway with its neighbors. And uh, so Israel continued to aspire to develop relations in the region, to break its isolation, but without the encumbrance of Palestinian prerequisites. That was going on under Netanyahu. What Israel did was to strengthen relations through military and defense collaboration with commerce, technology, and science. So Israel has begun to view itself as an economic leader of the Eastern, the economic leader of the Eastern Mediterranean. So, in parallel, it's begun to offer security and technological capabilities to other countries to stabilize and protect the Arab regimes from being from both internal threats by, uh, caused by an extremist religious group and uh, also external threats caused by Iran. So, um, this process culminated in the historic normalization agreements known as the Abraham Accords, which was signed at a time when Israel-Palestinian peace talks were the lowest point in decades. The signing, which coincided with offshore natural gas discoveries, resulted in an increase in Israel tourism and trade with the Arab Gulf states. So, because of these gas discoveries in the Mediterranean, this prompted unprecedented attention to the sea and the concept of a Western uh, alliance which Israel can engage 
So what happened was the Israel started signing agreements between with our with Israel, Cyprus, and Greece. So that's become an important trade and diplomatic partnership. So uh, that can help negate the threats of sanctions by the European Union, and it can compensate for deteriorating relations with Turkey. So in parallel, following the disengagement of the United States from this region, Israel has positioned itself as a regional leader in opposition to Iran's nuclear aspirations, and uh, in a highly significant element, Israel is now viewed by the Arab Gulf states as a strategic ally to compensate for U.S. disengagement from the region. So, um, I'll give you an example, by the way. An entire Israeli airborne division, along with Israeli Naval and Air Force, conducted a joint exercise in Cyprus with the Cyprus Armed Forces. A deal was signed between Cairo and Jerusalem to export Israeli gas via Egypt to Europe. A delegation of Egyptians visited Israel for the first time in 10 years for the purpose of expanding activity in, the, in this area. So the media are also reporting that Israel's chief of staff met with his Saudi counterparts in Cairo. And this is obviously secretly, but it's not been denied by the Saudis. So the uh, things are happening now that we, no one could even imagine 10 years ago. Now, the, uh, Biden visited Israel in July 2022, and it was an important stepping stone in the development. Right now, tangible diplomatic results are not yet clear, but the symbolic meaning cannot be overestimated. The U.S. administration sent the message that under the American umbrella, a new security architecture is developing involving Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states. So all this is set up as a counter-Iranian alliance. So this is enhanced by the fact the the Arabs dropped their, uh, their objection to Israel's joining the U.S. thing called CENTCOM. So now the U.S. can coordinate defense member states and under U.S. guidance. So this is a step forward in Israel's importance in the Middle East, its relationship with its neighbors, and with the United States. Now, all this shift from Israel's isolation to being sought-after partner happened a little more than a decade. And there have been substantial shifts in the geopolitical landscape that have forced countries to reassess and reformulate their national interests and their national priorities in light of the new strategic environment. The, uh, the Arab Spring, regime, regime instability, U.S. disengagement from Iraq and Afghanistan, the growing power and activity of Iran, and uh, our mental and socioeconomic uh, changes are all kind of pressures so, and this is, all this is helping Israel to become more firmly integrated into our area of the world. Now, it should be noted that at the same time, calls to boycott Israel still exist. The BDS movement has a strong appeal among activists and Palestinian sympathizers 
especially among the young and among young college people in the United States and also in Europe. Now, this could, under certain circumstances, evolve into a serious threat. In May 2021, Israel engaged what they call the Guardian of the Walls operation, and employees of numbers of companies, including Google, called for company action against Israel. The war in Ukraine demonstrates now that companies are prepared to take sides and terminate operations in the country if they wish to do so. So obviously Israel is taking note of this. Now, our prime minister, there's a lot of uh, uh, pressure in the Israeli Knesset, the parliament, and what's happening now to change some of the rules. But our prime minister advocates the idea that gas exports, for example, can be used as an effective geopolitical tool to ensure Israel's position through what, what he calls pipeline diplomacy. He said, and I quote, a country that exports things that are crucial for the surroundings for other countries has more power. Alliances are made with the strong, not with the weak. And the, in the end, peace is made with the strong. That is what our prime minister said. Now, the opportunities can be exploited to their fullest when capacity exists and attractive commodities can be offered. Israel today faces many such opportunities to change its fortune and standing in the region. Israel is equipped to take full advantage of these opportunities, whether it be cyber, water desalinization, medicine, security technology, energy, or clean tech. Israel has it all. So Israel now, looking back, should give credit to Ben-Gurion's vision. At a time when Israel was isolated and boycotted, he asserted that Israel could survive if it focused energy on developing its qualitative edge, its science, and its, and its technology. That was Ben-Gurion's vision, and that has come about. There are changes in the political makeup of the region that's opened up new opportunities. Israel's ability to fully exploit these opportunities reflect its successful pursuit of David Ben-Gurion's vision that the country's future, we are a country that has no basic resources, we have no coal, we have no iron, we have no oil. So our country's future would depend above all else on advances in qualitative edge and cultivation of its human talent. That was Ben-Gurion's vision, the cultivation of human talent. When you live in a country with no natural resources, you have to look at the one natural resource that's available. The natural resource that's available in Israel is human talent. Ben-Gurion saw that, and now it is coming to fruition. It's the people of Israel, the talent of Israel, not its natural resources that give Israel strength. And I wanted to share that message with the listeners. The strength of Israel, its natural resource is its humans. And that the government, any government 
that uh, exploits the human resources essentially ensures Israel's future. So now we're having a problem now with the uh, people taking issue with what's happening in the Supreme Court. I am sure that all, we are in a crisis now. There's no, no two ways about it. You hear it on the radio and see it on television. You see it in the newspapers every day. I am sure the cooler heads will prevail, Israel will prevail, and its human resources will be used to benefit our future. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom, I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home. Every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I don't want to bore the listeners, but I want to touch upon the subject of the judicial reform that the present government is trying to make. I've spoken about it before, and I thought if I just said a few words about it, the, the listeners would understand what's happening. But over the last two months, including now while I am uh, recording this program, tens of thousands of people have taken to the streets primarily to protest against the judicial reform. And the number who are uh, defending the judicial reform is uh, quite small compared to those against it. And I assume that's because the government is already planning the reforms. They don't have to go into the streets. But it's really tearing the country apart in a way that has not happened for many, many years. So I want to say a few more things about it. There is no doubt that Israel is a proud and strong institution of democracy, it's renowned for its commitment to the rule of law, and it has an independent judiciary. The recent proposals for judicial reform, which were proposed by the new Justice Minister Yariv Lavin and the Prime Minister Ben Netanyahu, have sparked concern from some quarters who argued that the proposed changes would somehow undermine Israeli democracy. However, as I understand it, the truth is that these reforms are vital for the preservation of true democracy in Israel. Now, what are the two main parts of the reform? The two main parts of the reform call for a change in the way judges are nominated in Israel and for the adoption of an override clause enabling Parliament, the Knesset, to pass laws that were previously canceled by the courts. So these are the two main things, the override clause and the way judges are nominated. Now, these, such a clause like the, the override clause 
It enables the uh, parliament to pass laws that were previously canceled by the courts exists in a lot of uh, democracies, including Canada, which is a well-respected democracy. Now, for decades, Israeli courts have been overstepping their bounds. For the last 25 years, they have been using their authority to cancel laws and intervene in political matters that should be left to the elected branches of government. The constitutional revolution started about 25 years ago, was led by former Chief Justice Aaron Barak. It may have been well-intentioned, but it has allowed the judiciary to expand its powers in ways that undermine the separation of powers and allows unelected judges to impose their will on the elected branches of government. That's the major problem now. Now, a lot of prominent legal experts uh, argued that they're in favor of the change. They've argued that this approach undermines the fundamental principles of democracy when the court has too much powers. Israeli courts today deal with deeply political questions that should be left to elected officials. Courts in Israel have ruled laws as unconstitutional on issues of immigration, economy, national security, and internal security. This is all happening while Israel has no written constitution. Israel has only what they call basic laws that have not been adopted as a constitution. Therefore, the parliament has never given the courts the authority of judicial review, but rather the courts took this authority by themselves without right. Now, another area where reform is desperately needed is the way the judges are appointed in Israel. The current system which relies on a committee of lawyers and judges to nominate judges, has been criticized for being too insulated from public opinion. So the proposed reforms would change this by giving equal representation on the nomination committee of judges to each branch of government, so this would ensure the politicians accountable to the people have a say in the appointment of judges. Right now, the committee that chooses the judges is made up, I think, nine people. Three of those people are judges, and they two are, are members of the Bar Association who depend on the judges in their private lives. So together, they essentially have a majority of five out of nine, and they appoint judges. This is not democratic. The idea is to change the composition of this committee. Uh, the, um, the critics of the proposed reforms argue that they would undermine the independence of the judiciary and hurt the right of minorities. But this is not true. This is a false narrative. The proposed changes would restore the balance of power between the branches of government and ensure that the judiciary is accountable to the people.
because democracy is not just about protecting individual rights. It is first and foremost about ensuring that the will of the majority is respected. The minority of unelected judges should not have more power than the people themselves. Now, that's the case right now in Israel, where unelected judges that are named by an unelected committee deal with deeply political questions. Furthermore, it's important to note that these proposed changes are in line with the practices of other democratic nations. The idea of an override clause, for example, is based on similar provisions in the Canadian Constitution, and no one would argue that Canada is not a democratic country. Also, the idea that politicians should have a say in the appointment of judges is a common practice in democracies around the world. For example, in America, how is the Supreme Court judge chosen? He's nominated by the president, which is the executive branch. He has to be approved by the Senate, which is the legislative branch, and then he becomes a judge. So the other branches of the government, other than the judicial, have a say in who is going to be in the judicial branch. We don't have that in Israel. It's a common phenomenon that Israel is often held to different standards when compared to other countries, and this is also the case with this proposed reform. The fact that Israel is being criticized for taking steps that are in line that are in line with the, with others that the democratic countries do is a clear indication of double standards being applied to the one and only Jewish state. Israel is a vibrant democracy. It's going through a vigorous public debate at the place about the place of the courts. It's an issue that is controversial in all, almost all democracies where those in favor of judicial activism argue with those who are in favor of judicial restraint. Only in Israel do people find this healthy debate is a dangerous democracy, and when only those in favor of judicial restraint want to implement their policies. This is hypocritical. It's a double standard, and a double standard is unacceptable. What is considered a legitimate internal debate in other democratic countries is seen somehow as an affront to democracy when it comes to Islam. So we have to be clear. The judiciary in Israel will stay independent. Individual rights will stay protected. And the rule of law will continue. However, democracy will be strengthened by reinforcing the ability of the Israeli people to rule themselves. So the proposed judicial reforms in Israel, I do not believe, are a threat to democracy. But... I believe that they are a necessary step to ensure
that democracy is protected. It's time for Israel to join the rest of the democratic world in adopting the same rules, the same standards that apply in other democratic, particularly Western countries. The truth of the matter is that the reforms being proposed by the government should be viewed as an opportunity to increase democracy in Israel not as a threat to democracy. The criticism of these proposed reforms is another example, unfortunately, of the double standards applied to Israel. This is unacceptable and it is unjust. So that's what this is about. So what I tried to do in the last few minutes is to shed some light on the controversy over the judicial reform. At the moment, the judiciary in Israel has a strength which is out of proportion. Out of proportion to the strength of the judiciary in other democratic countries. And the goal of the new government is to restrain the strength of the judiciary and bring it in line with the strength of judiciary in other countries. I think that is the bottom, that is the bottom of line of what's happening. And I hope I've been able to simplify it for the listeners. Now I wanna move on to another subject. Actually, it's not a subject, but it uh, is related to what I just spoke about. The One of the greatest strengths of Israel over the years was the feeling people around the world had that Israel was in the right, it was justified in what it did, and even when the images were tough and the outcome unclear, the moral foundations for what Israel did did not change. It is this assumption that kept the country in a positive light across the world. The feeling was that even if we made mistakes, Israel stood still, still stood its moral ground. Israel was still a little country fighting enemies encroaching upon it from all directions, and despite it all, Israel was finding a way to thrive. So to the world, Israel always had a powerful story. It's the tale of an ancient people returned to their historic homeland and against all odds, not only survived, but thrived. The Jewish people put up a vibrant democracy that was diverse, intriguing, and innovative. It developed some of the world's most advanced life-saving technologies at the same time, continued to tell a story that we would bring pride to its people and, and its supporters around the world. Israel has stayed the course of where the West thought it should be, and most of the country's citizens, Jews and non-Jewish, want it to be. So what's happening now, a lot of people around the world are confused about what's happening in Israel. They don't understand why the judicial reform is needed, why it's ripping the country apart, 
and why wherever they looked it seemed like Israel was falling, falling and failing. Somehow they think Israel has lost it. So the rapid pace of events in the last couple of months makes it like the, seem like the country's on steroids. If news one day is not dominated by a quarter million people protesting in the streets, then there's some security situation, a terrorist attack, or another piece of legislation that people are not happy about. So the the feeling today is is Israel is constantly on the move in an exaggerated and extreme way. So it's all this is really worth thinking about. In a couple of months, we're going to have Israel's 75th anniversary. So in a sense, Israel is no longer a kid. Israel's grown up. You're supposed to have acquired experience, wisdom, and perspective. You're supposed to appreciate what's, what it is that you have and understand how fragile it is and how easily it can all be lost. But it's also an opportunity to think about the story the country is telling today. What is the narrative we are telling ourselves and the world? It's something that transcends the who's prime minister, what specific issue the country is grappling with on a specific day. What we are really struggling with, I think, is a question of national identity and thinking about who we are, and what we want to be, while appreciating where we once were and where we are now today. Arguing is fine. This is actually one of Israel's greatest characteristics, arguing. When the arguments divide people the way they're doing now, and when they've created the worst political paralysis this country has ever known, we are now in a problem area. Questions of identity are always going to come up at some point in the nation's life. For example, the United States had its civil war less than a hundred years after its independence when it needed to figure out the direction that it wanted to go as a nation. Israel does not need a civil war, and we have to pray it never happens. It does, however, need to think hard about what type of country Israel wants to be and how it plans to get there. Judicial reform that's being proposed by the government is not the end goal on its own, but rather for some people it's just the means by which they take care of their personal problems. And even if there wasn't the judicial reform moving ahead right now, would Israel be able to tell a story that can once again captivate the world? Is that possible? Who knows? Could be that life has become too good in Israel for this to happen. And maybe that's the silver lining in the argument over the judicial overhaul. Life is good in Israel. We're strong militarily. The GDP per capita in the country is over $50,000. We have energy independence. When the country was fighting for survival, it didn't have the luxury to think about how to appoint judges or what percentage of Knesset members were needed to override a Supreme Court decision. The country was too busy simply trying to survive. 
That is no longer the case. There are threats and challenges today, but Israel's existence, thank God, is not in question. It does not wake up in the morning and fear that some external enemy will be able to sweep in, conquer territory, and put an end to the Zionist dream. Israel does, though, need to figure out what type of country it wants to be. But to do that, it needs to be able to tell a compelling story to itself, then to the world. And as, na- as of now, this moment, everybody seems to have lost the plot. What we're really arguing about now, and the Supreme Court is only the issue that we seem to be arguing about. The real question is, and what we're arguing about, who we are as a nation that's gained independence after 2,000 years of an often bitter diaspora. We have established a country 75 years ago, and we have yet to define exactly what that country is where it stands in Jewish history, and what it means about the Jewish future. That's what's really happening now. The Supreme Court is just the issue which has brought the question into the open. That's what's happening now in Israel. I'll be back after the break. You've come to the best station for hot news and sizzling commentary. אתם מקשיבים ל-Israel News Talk Radio. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I've spent a lot of time this week and last week, actually for the last uh, two or three weeks, discussing the fact that there's a big commotion now here in Israel, where uh, the uh, present government, which took office about two months ago, is trying to change, change the... Uh, composition of the uh, group that chooses the judges of the Supreme Court and a few other changes. And it's it's taken thousands and thousands of people into the streets, mostly against the change, some for the change. I have to assume that somebody is paying for all these uh, street riots, which is what they are, could be foreign money. I don't know. So I don't want to discuss it anymore this week. Uh, because it's interesting enough, the uh, Knesset, the Israeli uh, Congress, is going to go on vacation in several weeks, and uh, the uh, present uh, coalition, the government, is trying to make these changes before they go on vacation. And that, is, of course, is a story unto itself. They may try to push through some of the changes, not all the changes. So it, the, the news changes every day. And apparently the politicians are changing their position every day also. So I don't want to discuss, uh, talk about it anymore. And I don't think the listeners are interested any, anymore in, in this subject until such time as 
something really happens, not just the bickering from day to day. So I want to talk about something else in this segment of the program, something that has never been before. There was something now in this week called Diaspora Week. And uh, amid all the divisiveness and all the commotion over the judicial reform and all these protests in Israel that I mentioned, fact is this week is Diaspora Week, which has been overlooked. And to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time there's been a Diaspora Week. If there was one in the past, it never got the publicity that it's now getting, which I think is important. At any rate, no matter what the outcome of the constitutional crisis, this country, Israel, will need to find a way to continue forward and continue those ties with diaspora Jewry, which are an essential part of our progress, of our process. No matter what arguments and risks we have to deal with here in Israel, we will have to overcome them. Hopefully we will. So the divisiveness within Israel is reflected also in the strained ties with communities abroad. But these two need to be fixed. There's a new slogan now called, We Are One People and Forever. So this week's activities were all aimed at strengthening Israel's connection to Jewish communities abroad, and it included a broad range of educational and social programs. Our activities are taking place across the country, particularly in Jerusalem, including talks, uh, subjects like uh, uh, tackling anti-Semitism, uh, music, songs, plays, museum tours. And the Jerusalem Cinematheque, which is not far away from where I live, uh, for example, has a diff- different talk and movie related to the diaspora every evening. At a time of increased anti-Semitism and the acts of the BDS movement, Israelis need to remember that our faiths as members of the Jewish people are intertwined. We should, however, also be careful not to base our relationships only on combating anti-Semitism together. You have to remember that half of the Jewish people, roughly, does not live in the state of Israel, and they live in communities large and small all over the entire globe. Care must be taken not to equate the diaspora only with Jews in North America, even though they are the big majority outside the country. Not quite sure how many Jews live in America. When I was a kid, they used to talk about 6 million, then they talk about 5 million. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I probably assume with with the uh, lack of Jewish education and the intermarriage and so forth, it's probably more closer to 4 million, but in any event, it's a lot of people. Now, there are Ashkenazi and Sephardic diaspora communities and a range of other special communities with unique customs and traditions, just as the majority of Jews in Israel is not homogeneous. So we can learn from the diversity. Israelis who, Israelis who travel abroad on vacation often do not take the time to get to know the local Jewish communities. I think in most cases, and I can speak for myself, people who are more traditional 
more apt to look for kosher food, uh, more apt to look for a place to say prayers or to keep the Shabbat, they're more apt to get to know the local Jewish communities. People who are not, they don't necessarily make contact with Jewish communities. I've spoken to a lot of people, Israelis who travel, and I, this is true. But people who spend a period of time in a diaspora for work or for studies or as emissaries learn to appreciate how their own Jewish identity can be strengthened through the experience of meeting other Jews outside the country. Jews outside of Israel have to deal with special challenges regarding their religion and ethnic identity that are simply not the same as we Israeli Jews face. Learning about these challenges, the challenges to Jewish communities outside of Israel, and how to handle them can be mutually beneficial. And last year, we have also seen the importance of Israel diaspora ties when it comes to Jews from Ukraine. There's been a war in Ukraine for over a year, and there are Jews living in Ukraine, in Russia, and in surrounding countries who are impacted by this war. The way Jewish communities around the world and in Israel have acted to help their brethren, brethren has really been terrific and really been heartwarming. The ties between Israel and the diaspora are special. There's a connection that crosses continents, crosses languages and customs. The, this special affinity among Jews needs to be fostered and it needs to be furthered. It's important. Uh, in Israel, the focus over years has naturally been on the law of return and encouraging Aliyah for people to come and live in Israel. Continuing to help immigration to Israel requires calm and careful thinking about the law of return, which is who is eligible and their links to the Jewish people. I served as what is called a Shliach Aliyah in the United States, had all kinds of interesting problems having to do with the people with mixed backgrounds, mixed families, and so forth. We want to encourage Jews to come to Israel, but we don't want to encourage people who are not Jewish or, or, or not linked close to the Jewish community to come. We, we have a, a big enough um, population percentage problem here in Israel to make sure that people who come here are Jews. Uh, it's nice to help other people. I remember when uh, Begin was prime minister and they had these boat people escaping from Vietnam. He brought them here, regardless of the fact they weren't Jewish. That, that is something that that really was uh, was we can be proud of. But in general, we like those who come to Israel to be Jewish, to strengthen the Jewish community here. At the same time, Israel needs to make the switch and accept that the Jews who live in the diaspora have legitimate communities and they have legitimate concerns. They can't be ignored. While in the past Israel was dependent to a large extent on these diaspora communities, the relationship today is far more symbiotic. Israel must help diaspora communities. When the state of Israel came into being, Israel was poor, didn't have arms, and we depended on very much on the diaspora Jewish communities to influence their own governments to help Israel. 
But times have changed. Israel is approaching its 75th anniversary. The situation is entirely different than it was when Israel was founded. Israel uh, the and the Jewish people have uh, survived challenges for more than several thousand years, millennia. Just as we call on Jews abroad to maintain their ties with Israel, make sure to educate the next generation of the importance of those ties and Jewish education, the fact is that we in Israel must make sure that Israeli Jews realize the importance of those bonds with those Jewish communities outside of Israel and ensure that school children are taught about them. For years and years, the, uh, the educational system in Israel, particularly the secular education, simply didn't recognize the existence of Jewish communities outside of Israel. And now they have to put into their curricula the uh, the fact that there are Jewish communities outside of Israel, they're all different kind of communities, and they have to be taught about. So uh, it's good to have special activities for Diaspora Week this week. It would be better to keep this special relationship in mind all, all, time, all times of the year. However difficult the times, however serious the political divides, particularly here in Israel, we are one people, we are one family. That's the thought to keep in mind, particularly as we approach Passover in a couple of weeks, when we call the exodus from Egypt and our joint history. So the fact that they are waking up in Israel, that we, to the fact that we have to strengthen our ties, and we have much, we in Israel have much to provide to the diaspora Jewish communities, we have developed these ties and really helped them. As I said a moment ago, when a state first came into being 75 years ago, we here in Israel were very dependent on them. Now I think there's a tremendous mutual dependence. Uh, perhaps even the diaspora communities depend more on us. But uh, that's, that, that's a question of... Uh, I guess the educators and the experts can talk about, but the, the bottom line is we and our brethren in the diaspora are essentially one people, and we have to develop the ties between us. Now I want to switch gears to an entirely different subject. A, uh, it's been found that uh, the U.S. Democrats today, the Democratic Party, sympathize more with Palestinians than they do with Israel, according to a survey. For the first time in decades, a Gallup poll found that Democrats are more likely to sympathize with Palestinians than with Israelis, though a majority of Democrats have, still have a favorable, favorable view of Israel. Now, the question asked was, this is what the Gallup poll did, in a Middle East situation, are you sympathetic more with the Israelis or more with the Palestinians? 49% of Democrats, Democrats sympathize more with the Palestinians and 38% sympathize more with the uh, Israelis. An additional 13%, according to the poll, sympathize with neither or they sympathize with both, or they had no opinion. 
So that, that's quite interesting, by the way. Sympathy uh, for Israelis among Republicans remains strong, with 78% sympathizing more with Israel, that's the Republicans, and 11% sympathizing more with the Palestinians. Among independents, 49% sympathize with the Israelis and 30% with 32% with the Republicans. And overall, the majority, 54% of Americans, sympathize more with the Israelis and 31% sympathize more with Palestinians. It's quite interesting, by the way. Uh, last Saturday evening, we had a uh, guest at our home staying in hotels. Uh, they were not Jewish, and uh, they, uh, uh, were, they were brought... Someone arranged for them to come to our home for Shabbat, and uh, they spent a Friday evening with us, a group of about uh, close to 30 people, and in discussions with them, and these are people, most of them are retired, and people who have traveled all over the world, people who have uh, really been everywhere, just about, probably up including uh, Antarctica, so they've been around. And it was remarkable how little they knew about Israel. Really, this, to many of them, the majority of them, this was the first trip to Israel. And you would think if people were traveling around the world, they would go to places of interest. And uh, for better or for worse, Israel is one of the most inter interesting places in the world. Uh, and it's in one of the most interesting areas in the world. But it was remarkable how little these people knew about Israel. I really found it quite shocking. So, getting back to these, uh, this Gallup poll, the resulting 23-point gap in American sympathy for Israel versus the Palestinians represents Israel's slimmest advantage on this question in Gallup's World Affairs poll. <coughs> Gallup said, the first time Israel has not enjoyed a better than two-to-one advantage over the Palestinians in American sympathies. Majorities of both Republicans and Democrats view Israel favorably, according to Gallup. Overall, 68% of respondents have a favorable opinion of the country. Among the Republicans, 82% view Israel favorably, and the figure among the Democrats is only around 56%. Now, I, I, I don't want to bore the uh, listeners with all kind of numbers, but it's interesting. The sort of, pretty much the bottom line in all this is that the, the, the uh, Republicans sympathize that is more than the Democrats, but that the overall favoritism toward Israel is down over the years. Last year, Sympathies with among the Democrats in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict were virtually tied with 40% sympathizing more with Israel and 38% sympathizing more to Palestinians. But a decade ago, 55 of Democrats sympathized more with Israel and 19% sympathized more with the Palestinians. So what's happened is Israel's positive margin and the survey has progressively declined over the last decade. As I said a moment ago, these are numbers, but <clears throat> I don't know if the Gallup poll, I didn't see the details, whether before they ask whom they with whom they sympathize, they, do they ask how much they know 
about what's happening in the Middle East and the history of the conflict here in the Middle East. So, in general, the trend in recent years uh, has been toward increased sympathy toward the Palestinians, but it did not detail what caused the surge in sympathy for the Palestinians among Democrats. Now, there is no doubt that tensions between Israel and Palestinians may have intensified over the last year. I don't know if they did. But think about it for a moment. More than a dozen Israelis have died in attacks this year, while dozens of Palestinians who Israel says are mostly terrorists also have died in Israeli military raids. And it's interesting, you know, Israel, Israel, except for a very, very fringe group, Israelis don't go and attack Palestinians. Those uh, Palestinians who die are the result of their own terrorism. They've been found out by the Israeli army. Now, there's no doubt that Israel elected several months ago a governing coalition that includes far right-wing parties, including lawmakers who pretty much didn't uh, are said how much they don't like Arabs, but they're really a fringe. The um, the uh, it could be, and some of the leaders of uh, the Jewish Democrats. There's something called the Jewish Democratic Council of America, and the leadership told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency that Gallup's questions presents a false dichotomy and that the Democratic Party's leadership is pro-Israel. The, the Jewish Democrats claim that, uh, strong, that the Democrats uh, support Israel, Israel's safety and security, there's no contradiction between being a pro-Israel and supporting Palestinian rights, which is why Democrats continue to support a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, according to these Jewish Democrats. They're, of course, in favor of security assistance to Israel and humanitarian assistance to the Palestinians, which is fine. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a zero-sum game, and thus polling that presents it as a binary choice is inherently flawed. By the way, at the moment, there is no, except for a uh, small, noisy group, there's no evidence of erosion of support for Israel among Democrats in Congress. So um, there's also something called the Republican-Jewish Coalition, and they said that the declining Democratic sympathy for Israel is an extremely troubling trend. So you have so in in uh, so you have both um, uh, Democrats, Jewish Democrats, and Jewish Republicans disagreeing with each other about who supports Israel the most, the Republicans or the Democrats. So that's an internal American political problem, I think. Anyhow, uh, I'll be back after the break. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I don't want to spend too much time speaking about the controversial issues that are now facing our 
Knesset, our parliament, because these issues are not going to be resolved so fast and they're a little bit complicated. I don't want to confuse the listeners. But I would say something about some of the parties that are in the Knesset today. The National Religious Party has for many years been in the Knesset, I think actually since the founding of the state. And the people who headed the party, who are no longer at the heads of the party, were very experienced both as representatives in the Knesset as well as diplomats, and therefore they conducted themselves in a way I guess you could call the golden mean. They knew when to compromise, how to compromise. One of the problems we're having now is that some of the members uh, of the present government, including the religious party, the parliamentarians are people who have never had experience in a parliament and therefore they really and truly, although their intentions might be good, they simply do not know how to behave and they do and say things that essentially make them look like radicals. They have not had the diplomatic and political experience that would enable them to take positions or to state their positions in a way that is acceptable to everybody. So what we really now, it, we need now is better behavior, if you will, on the part of the right-wing parties. Now it's been found, and I may have mentioned this previously, that a larger number of Democrat voters in the United States than ever before view Palestinians more favorably than they view Israel. This is a first time ever shift in preference. So it really is shocking. I think I mentioned it previously on this program or in another program. According to a Gallup poll, 49% to 38%, that is 49% of the Democrats polled by telephone between February 1st and February 23rd viewed Palestinians as better than Israelis and 30% used Israelis over Palestinian. So in terms of the Democrats, 49 in favor of the Palestinians 38% in favor of Israel. I would attempt to say, I don't see what the what goes into the Gallup poll, but I, I would be tempted to believe that a lot of the people who are in the United States, Democrats, who answered the poll simply don't really know what's going on in Israel. You have to follow the papers every day, and indeed it's best to read the Israeli papers or to... Uh, hear the Israeli news to have an idea of what's ha happening in Israel. When you listen to the American media, you're hearing information that's already been filtered by those who are providing the news. So for Israelis, the fact that the, the uh, Democrats are now leaning toward the Palestinians 
is really not good news. All the good, all the contributions that Israel makes to the world, and especially to, in the, to the U.S. compared to the Palestinians, is minimized, discounted, discredited, and even ignored. So how could these voters, these Americans, be more favorably inclined to Palestinians than they are to Israelis? Now, the truth of the matter is, if you think about it, uh, these numbers could have been predicted. They could have been considered inevitable. The arrival this day was predictable. It was simply a matter of time before Gallup or any other pollster would deliver the bad news to Israel. The good news is that all is not lost. While 49% of those polled may favor Palestinians over Israelis, 56% of Democrats still view Israel favorably. The better news is that when Republicans were asked about Israel, 82%, that's a whopping number, responded that they view Israel favorably. And overall, Americans have a 68 favorable view of Israel. Now, it's, it strikes me odd. I, I really, truly believe <coughs> that this number 68, which is favorable to Israel, is based on the fact that most of these people who, uh, who answer the pollsters, they really don't know what's happening in Israel. The news that gets to, to uh, the United States in particular is filtered, filtered through the news media who have their own prejudices. I, I really believe that people knew more about Israel, more about the Palestinians, the numbers favorable to Israel would be greater than 60%. So the in the eyes of Democrats, there's been a drop in favorability of Israel. There was an 11-point spread. A decade ago, the spread was 55 to 19% in favor of Israel, so the gap is closing. There's still those who claim that the Democratic leadership is still in Israel's court. In other words, these polls are taken by Democrats who answer their telephones. But the Democratic leadership in Congress is apparently still in these Israel's favor. But but what we're witnessing is a deep-seated anti-Israel sentiment for many of those who are very comfortable in the Democratic Party. The, there's the, um, the move away from Israel among Democrats is predominant and widespread among what's called millennials. Uh, now, the millennials are people born, I believe, at the turn of the century. And the truth of the matter is that they are the future of the Democratic Party. So you have to worry at what the favorability quotient will be 10 years and 20 years from now. Now, there's a reason for this popularity gap. Loyalties are changing because the United States is changing and because Israel is changing. The portrayal of Israel and the American media during the past four months since this new government took office in Israel has been extremely negative. 
Despite the great things that Israel does, like the international life-saving measures Israelis undertake to save even their enemies, when they had a, uh, a, a uh, problem in Syria, Israel brought Syrians into Israel to save them. Same thing is true in Jordan. These are not the stories played out in the American media. There are two news stories emanating from the Jewish state that have captured U.S. media attention over the last four months, and they get the headlines. One is an extremist Israeli government and the attempt here in Israel at judicial reform most of which is not even understood by the Israelis, let alone the American public population. So both these storylines in the extremist Israeli government and judicial reform, whether they're true or not, portray Israelis as breaking down the democratic fabric of Israel. Neither depicts Israel as responding adequately to these issues. Neither changes, essentially describes why these things are happening in Israel. If anything, the nature of the Israeli leadership, which is unexperienced, as I mentioned at the beginning, has pretty much exaggerated the situation. Israeli leadership, that is the parties in the coalition, have fueled the perception that the country is moving toward extremism and that Israel is eroding the foundations of democracy. And that democracy includes minority rights. It includes the rights of Palestinians and the rights of the LGBTQ community. Right now, the media in the United States portrays the government of Israel as being influenced by anti-democratic forces with members of the government publicly announcing that entire Palestinian should, should, cities should be destroyed after uh, two brothers were killed uh, in, this, in the uh, passing through the village of Hawara several weeks ago one of the ministers of the National Religious Party publicly said that the uh, village should be destroyed. And that was obviously a mistake. He shot his mouth off. He later apologized, but it was too late. And by the way, I know that village. When I served in the army here in Israel, I used to go to that village quite often. And it was really quite busy place because both uh, Jews and Palestinians uh, bought there. They purchased things there. They had a lot of stores on the main street that ran through the village. What happened was, after two brothers were killed by uh, a terrorist in that village, some uh, fanatics, I guess you can call them, ran into the village and started uh, burning uh, cars and things of that nature. So, unfortunately, this uh, fringe group of uh, Jewish radicals gave, gave us a bad name. Now, the, for example, another is that the, uh, the minister in charge of the police fired a police commander for not quelling political demonstrations uh, in Tel Aviv. That is bad publicity. 
Uh, now you have the attorney general saying that all the actions, many of the actions of the present governor are legal. And after the uh, attorney general said that, one of the ministers called for the firing of the attorney general. This kind of thing is uh, doesn't sit well with the general public. Now, it doesn't take too much imagination to see how this kind of thing plays out in the United States. And it's not just in the United States. It's true in Europe also. During our prime minister's state visit to Germany last week, these accusations were thrown at him at nearly every place where he stopped. There is good cause for worry about the extremism that if the Supreme Court is neutered, extremists will gain more power, that if extremists gain more power, Israel, the democracy, will move, more become Israel, the authoritarian regime. We are in a crisis period. For a long time, loyalty to and support of Israel was a bipartisan issue in America. Both Republicans and Democrats supported Israel. In the American Congress, this is pretty much wall-to-wall support. The balance was always a seesaw, but it all balanced out in the past. There was a time when Republicans were more skeptical about Israel, and the Democrats were over the top in love with Israel. I remember that when I was a kid in the United States. The uh, Democrat then and today still get most of the Jewish vote. And the Democrats knew that the, in order to maintain the Jewish vote, then they had to be supportive of Israel. What's happening now, by the way, that's not the issue I wanted to speak about, something that's important, that the new generation of Jews, which have much less Jewish education, they themselves are not as supportive of Israel as their parents and grandparents were. It's interesting, by the way, and I remember this. When Israel first came, it was created in 1948, American Jews supported Israel, I, I don't know, 98 or 99, maybe 100 percent, except for a few uh, radicals. Interestingly enough, you have to remember, at that time, the uh, American Jewish community was made up of immigrants or children of immigrants, and they knew what life had been like in other countries like in Europe. And they were so happy that there was a Jewish state that they, they supported the state, even though the state at that time was run by a socialist government. The American Jews would never dream of living under a socialist government supported the state of Israel, which had a socialist government, because they were so happy that there was a Jewish state, after what the Jews had been through for 2,000 years, including the time of the Holocaust of 1939 and 1945. But that generation of Jews is no longer there. So they can't be, this present generation of Jews can't be counted on to support uh, Israel for historic reasons. Those Jews who supported Israel when Israel became a state were people who supported Israel from their guts. It was a gut 
feeling that there had to be a Jewish state, that no longer exists among a, a American Jews. So stable democracies change very slowly and things happen quickly is not good. And that's what's happening in Israel right now. These parties that are in the government are pushing too hard for change. They have not had governmental experience in the past. So on one hand, in the States, you have a Jewish community which is not as aware Jewishly as their parents and great-grandparents were. And you, in Israel, you have a government which is it's composed of people who have finally achieved power and they really don't know how to use it. So the, the bottom line is that Israel has to be aware and really careful about dramatic change. They have to be moderate. It's very interesting that both our tradition in Maimonides and the Greek tradition uh, of Aristotle that the principles of what they call the golden mean, the middle road. Now, that Israel has to move back to the middle road, which is, which is uh, it has uh, uh, moved away from in the last couple of months. And so, the, as I mentioned a moment ago, you have an American Jewish community which is not historically have the feelings about being Jewish that their parents and grandparents did. And you have an Israeli government that finally, there are parties that have uh, now taken power. They never had power before. And they don't really know how to use it. This is a very bad combination. But I think this is exactly what is happening now. So when you read the headlines, uh, I would like the listeners to understand that uh, this is, I think this is explains what's happening in, in, uh, in terms of Jewish community and very attitude toward Israel, what's happening in Israel. The, also, part of the bottom line is that Israel still has tremendous bipartisan support in both houses of Congress. Now, a lot of this has to do with the fact has, uh, has nothing to do with the fact that Israel is a Jewish state or it's a refuge for Jews. It has the fact is that it is a democratic state in the Middle East and an ally of the United States. When you look at countries around us, you look at Iran, you look at Turkey, uh, you look at uh, Saudi Arabia, and 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 you take a, a uh, you look at the next. Uh, group outside that. You look at Russia, you look at China, and you can understand why Israel is a is a friend of the United States and why the United States is a friend of Israel. As a matter of fact, much of the, not much, but a percentage of the uh, American supplies for their own forces are kept in Israel. There are places in Israel, for example, where stuff is stockpiled by the American armed forces for use by the American armed forces. They don't have to drag stuff all the way from the United States. They use them here in the Middle East or in the ocean, Indian Ocean, for example. So it's a complicated issue. 
Well, as I said at the beginning, I guess I can summarize it by saying the new Israeli government has to learn how to behave. Even what it, what it does is perhaps justified, it has to explain it so that its justification is obvious. Thanks again for listening. Jay Shapiro, signing off. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at israelnewstalkradio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dots, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dots from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.